0: We got to know each other a few, well, a month now. Uh, We went to a conference in warm Minneapolis, Minnesota. It was negative 11. And uh, so what I remember is, so anyway, Luke's part of a sister NAB church up north in Bellingham, Legacy Church. He's a worship leader there, uh, just graduated seminary he made the trip down here with his wife, Raina sitting over here and his mom, Lynn joined us. So we thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for being here. Mm -hmm. And, but back to the conference, it was just a sweet time of, of fellowship. And I feel like the guys that went from here and all the other guys from the legacy church, I felt like our hearts were just knit together. Um, it was just a sweet time to sit and talk with them, listen to messages by men like Piper, um, uh, to Rigney. Yes. I was thinking the other one. I, I'm sorry. I get nervous and I forget 70s. things. That one. Yes. So anyway. Small people. So, and then we would go, we'd, we'd just sit and eat and just talk about what we learned, um, talk about what God is doing in our lives. And so it was just an encouraging time to get to know him. So it's, it's a privilege to have him down here and uh, hear, him, hear him preach. So I will go ahead and pray and then Luke will take it away. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you that uh, Luke is able to be here, that he made the trip, that you kept him safe. I just pray, Lord, that you'd uh, be with his words this morning, that um, you would just prepare our hearts, that the things that he says uh, can just help us to understand Christ better, uh, the mind of Christ, and that we would uh, just learn how we can grow to be more like uh, your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. Well, I'm not usually a guest speaker. I do preach uh, at my own church um, infrequently. And so when I'm asked to preach in another church, there's not a little bit of nerves that come into it. Um, but you have all been so inviting and welcoming and loving. Um, and, and it's just a, it's a privilege for me to come and to bring God's Word to bear to you this morning. Today we are going to be in the 17th chapter of John. So if you want to kind of have your Bibles, start working there. I looked in one of your Bibles, your chair Bibles, I think it was page 1001, if, uh, if you want to get there a little quicker. Um, I, as, a, as a little caveat, something kind of interesting about um, me is I lived here uh, for most of my life. I, I moved up to Bellingham about seven years ago, and I helped plant LifePoint Church, which met just directionally. I'm not sure where I'm at, but that way. And... Uh, <clears throat> And so I served there as kind of a de facto associate uh, pastor, uh, also police officer by day and, and associate pastor by night, or maybe that's backwards. Um, and, uh, and then I got, a, I, I got a chance to see how you guys served us many times with this building. And, and so thank you for that. Um, and as Steve said, I got a chance to meet uh, Kelly and Steve and, and uh, your pastor, Nick. Uh, wonderful men, and it was a, a real privilege to get to know them. But... Without further ado, uh, let's turn into God's Word. Um, this is a very uh, difficult passage to preach. It's, it's one that I preached recently uh, as our church and legacy in Bellingham has been going through the book of John over, uh, man, it seems like it's been about a year, um, but there's so much in John that it takes a while to get through there. And we come to chapter 17, which is a very, very unique chapter in all of Scripture, This chapter is unlike anything else you will read anywhere else in Scripture because it is the only recorded full prayer that we have of Jesus to the Father. And probably in your mind you're thinking, what about the Lord's Prayer? Um, That's probably better titled the Disciples' Prayer because he was giving the disciples a model for how to pray. and, And you might recall the words, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Well, Jesus obviously didn't have any... Sins to need forgiveness for. So, this is a very sacred moment in the life of our Lord. His ministry, his formal ministry on earth, has has sort of come to a close. He's delivered his final words to his disciples, beginning in the upper room, if you're familiar with that. The disciples have sort of become confused about what Jesus is saying, but they sense a seriousness in his tone, maybe in his body language. Chapter 16 says that sorrow had begun to enter the disciples' heart because they sensed that he was leaving. And Jesus and his uh, 11, now as Judas has departed, have left the upper room and they've begun walking toward the Garden of Gethsemane. And before they get there, Jesus stops and he gives the disciples these final words you may be familiar with. They have comforted me many, many times in my life, John 16:33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. And after this, he lifts his eyes to heaven, and he begins praying. J.C. Ryle says of this passage, this chapter 17, We have here the prayer of one who spoke as never a man has spoken. And prayed as never a man has prayed. The prayer of the second person of the Trinity to the Father. The prayer of one whose office it is, as our high priest, to make intercession for his people. In Christ's prayer to the Father, he prays for himself, and then the passages I won't be covering today, he begins to pray for his own disciples, and then he prays for the saints who are yet to come. And so it's something that we ought to stop show reverence for, and to truly consider. So if you would, and if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, unfailing, and life-giving word, John 17, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning, your word, your precious word, which never gives us void. You would give us a heart to receive the message that you and you alone would have for us. May my words fail, but may your words remain forever. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, as I studied this passage, I was uh, moved in considering a number of different things. Just in these five verses are a ton of doctrines, Um, but I'm not in a seminary and I'm not giving a lecture. So um, the thing that did stand out to me, though, that I want to focus or highlight on is the mind Of Christ. And that's the title of the message this morning, The Mind of Christ. I know that you've been on a series uh, on prayer, as I understand it, and it's my hope that as we look at these few verses this morning, that we might have the mind of Christ um, as we petition the Lord, that we might make his priorities our priorities too. And so I want to draw attention to just three uh, main things this morning. There's a lot more there, but three things that stood out to me at least, and that is that The mind of Christ glorifies God through waiting, through obedience, and delighting in his purpose. And so we begin with verse 1, and it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. The scriptures have demonstrated that God has given mankind every chance to repent throughout history. And at every step, mankind, by and large, has rejected him. He gave them judges, priests, prophets, kings, and none of them could save. And despite all of their pleading, mankind rejected the message. And even some of those messengers became corrupt themselves. And finally, God would send his Messiah It was the better prophet and priest and king, the very son of God who would answer the question that had been lingering for thousands of years, which is, who can save us? And throughout the ministry of Christ, as recorded in the book of John, we see that he is constantly aware of God's perfect timing and will. Every step of the way, Jesus is concerned with the timing of God's plan And was patient for it to come. He was in perfect harmony with the Father. And we know this because of his repeated statements in John about how his hour had not yet come. That is because the mind of Christ glorifies God in waiting. Specifically waiting on God's perfect plan that had been unfolding for thousands of years. You might recall at the beginning of John in chapter 2, there's this wedding in Cana, and they've run out of wine, heaven forbid, and Jesus' mother tells him about the fiasco. And he replies, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. A few chapters later, in seven, his brothers try to shoo him away. They don't believe. They tell him, go do your works in a more public place. And he says, my time has not yet come but your hour is always here. A few verses later, they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. The very next chapter, 820, says he's teaching in the temple, and they sought to arrest him, but no one did because his hour had not yet come. And what we learn is that God's timing is perfect throughout all ages, even today. And here we see that finally, Finally, Jesus speaks to the Father, proclaiming, the hour has come. Those words should land heavy. What hour is that? It is the hour for Jesus to complete the work that he came to do. What his entire ministry has been about, his death and burial and resurrection. He is not late. He is not preemptive. It is just as it had been planned from the very beginning. Romans 5, 6 says that while we were still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus knows that he's going to be the recipient of pain and suffering on the cross, but even more, taking on the sins of the sheep that are given to him by the Father that he should save, as we will read every sin you can imagine, every secret sin, every sin that's out in the open, the white sins, the huge, dark, terrible, corrupt ones, that the righteous Son of God will take on all of those sins on himself and pay the price and buy our redemption with his own blood. His hour has finally come. And Jesus has waited patiently for this hour because the mind of Christ glorifies God in waiting, and we can glorify him in our waiting as well. He didn't seek to speed it up or get it over with as I would. He didn't go beyond his instructions from the Father, but he waited. Taking one step at a time, no matter how arduous it was. I'm sure being all-powerful has its temptations. When you have Pharisees calling you names or yelling at you, or when you're literally starving in the desert, it might be tempting to make a loaf of bread. It comes in handy to be all-powerful, and yet he waited He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled all of the law which we could not. He faithfully proclaimed the gospel to the lost, demonstrated his divinity in signs and wonders, served his disciples, and now the hour has come that he has so patiently waited for. And so it is my hope that we would have this mind of Christ to patiently wait on God's perfect plan. Sometimes we may desire insight where God has not desired for us to have it. And that can be frustrating. The not knowing can be quite frustrating. We want the certainty of an outcome, not a person that we can be certain of, even if that person is God. But faith is perfectly demonstrated in Christ. He did not strive against God's timing or try to make it go in another way. He looked at the Father and trusted him and not his circumstances Jesus was patient to wait on the Father through near total rejection by his own people, dull disciples, physical exhaustion, non-committal followers, and people who were demanding signs everywhere. But he knew that the Lord would fulfill his perfect plan. And 2 Peter 3.9, as you may be familiar with, says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. He has not forgotten you. He has not neglected you. Psalm 139.16 reminds us, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, yet when as yet there were none of them. Your days are written and accounted for, and God is the author of them. And rest assured that his plan will not neglect one for whom his son has died. We're not frequently privy to the particulars of God's plan. I have asked many times. But our hope is not in circumstances. Our hope is in a person. We trust not in circumstances or things. We trust in the person and work of Christ Jesus. And as Christ followers, we understand that our waiting is not wasted. He is doing a work in you. And he is bringing his plan to fruition, so that at just the right time, he will be glorified. And that is something that is of supreme importance for us, as we will see. So pray that you may understand his will indeed, but more importantly, pray that God will give you the grace to fix your eyes on his son and not the plans of your own heart. And in this, we will have the mind of Christ. On that same note, on that same thought, next we see that the mind of Christ glorifies God through obedience. Verse 1 continues, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And then verses 4 and 5, I, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, I have described it as obedience, and that is because the glory that Christ is seeking is inextricably linked to the cross. Obedience and glory are hand and glove, two sides of the same coin, Uh, and it's ironic because his glory is the very thing that was also so humiliating. And this kind of glory is not the kind of glory that we're, we're used to, We see athletes and politicians and professional musicians, but what they're pursuing is self-serving. The glory that Christ is pursuing is not self-serving, it is humble. It's not narcissistic, but holy. It's not a spectacle, but gentle and lowly. J.C. Ryle says this kind of glory is a specific kind of glory, namely that divine glory that shines in humble and sacrificial obedience. It is for this purpose that Christ came. And we can see in his prayers in the the Garden of Gethsemane, if you keep reading in John, that what he is about to face is difficult and troubling. He sweat drops of blood it is so overcoming. And he petitions the Father, but his, his unwavering character causes him to obey the Father at all costs, literally all costs. Isaiah prophesied of the Messiah's unwavering commitment, saying, the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. That is because the mind of Christ glorifies God through obedience By Jesus seeking glory, he achieves our good and our joy. His obedience puts the Father's miraculous plan on display to redeem a people from death to life to the praise of God's glory. His hour has finally come, and it will culminate in people from every tribe and every tongue and every ethnicity rejoicing to see what the Father has had in store for them these many, many years, that God would become a man and live a perfect life for us and die on a cross taking on the sins of his people and rise again victorious over sin and death. And that external shame Jesus is about to endure will result in the praise of his wonderful name for all of eternity to come. This work is complete as well You'll notice Jesus says, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And that might cause you to say, well, he hasn't gone to the cross yet. He hasn't accomplished it all. But Jesus speaks with a settled assurance and a confidence that what God is doing absolutely will, be, will, will come to pass. Nothing will fail. Nothing what, uh, of what God has said will uh, transpire will fail. He has accomplished it all on our behalf. And then finally in verse 5, he seeks to return to his heavenly glory that he had with the Father, which would occur at his ascension and and coronation in heaven. The disciples couldn't see it at this stage. Um, When Jesus died, they became dejected. They fell into despair, not realizing that the Messiah had to suffer. But when he rose again, the joy was inexpressible. And I'm grateful this morning that Jesus cried out to be glorified with the Father because it resulted in my salvation from all of my sins. God's glory was for my good. It is for your good as well. Now, some might read that God seeks his own glory, and they're not going to say it out loud, but in the back of their head they might be thinking, why is it okay for God to seek after glory, but it's not okay for me to seek after glory? Let's have some credit where credit's due. I've done some good things. And the simple answer is, well, you're not God. So there's that. But I think it's helpful for us to wrestle with this subject a little bit. What is the glory of God? It is the internal reality and the external display of the greatness of God. It's the internal reality and the external display of the greatness of God. So it really has to do with God's nature. When God is seeking his own glory, he's not desiring to become more glorious. He's simply revealing what is already true about him. He is glorious. God has never made more or less glorious than he already is because he can't change. That's called his immutability. God never changes. And so when we talk about giving God glory, what we're doing is, or what we're saying is that we're displaying more and more, in an outward sense, of the reality of who God already is. We're displaying reality to a world lost in delusion. And so if we confuse human glory with the glory God has, then we totally misunderstood. Humans seek their own glory because they lack it and because they can't hold on to it. God already has glory to the fullness, and it never goes away. Alan Carr has a famous quote that goes, you should never meet your heroes. Paul Newman, I was so excited about meeting him, but he showed up in tracksuit bottoms, slippers and a sweater. He was so worn out and old, and he just wanted to go home. We may glorify people in our minds, but the reality is never as glorious as we had envisioned. Men desire glory because they cannot keep it and they do not have it. When was the last time you saw the 1968 NBA champions on the front page news? 1968. Who was the MVP? I don't know either. Who cares? (laughs) The point is that it doesn't matter. God's glory does matter. God desires glory because he possesses all of it to the fullness and is desiring to reveal it in us for our joy and to stand against darkness. We were made for that purpose. Isaiah 43, 7 says that everyone who is called by his name is made for his glory. Romans eleven thirty six 36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things To him be glory forever. Amen. And as you're probably familiar, the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with this famous question What is the chief end of man? Amen. (laughs) To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And Jesus here is praying. For his own glory, to the Father's glory, for our good. And up to now, the disciples have been slow to hear and to understand. They still don't realize what the plan of God is. In their eyes, glory is an earthly kingdom with an earthly king that they're hoping will be Jesus, a political solution to a spiritual problem. But something greater is about to be revealed to them, Jesus is the better prophet, priest, and king. He is the king of kings with authority over every soul. The internal reality of God's glory is about to be externally displayed on the cross and resurrection that no one was prepared for. The sun would go dark and the earth would quake and nations would mourn, but Jesus would rise again and reveal the glory of God that has been waiting in mystery all these many years. Jesus is humbly praying for glory so that through his obedience, God will be magnified for eternity, and his perfect plan will culminate in our good. We were made to be vessels of that already existent glory. Our obedience to what God has called us to do directly results in a display of that glory. Now, sometimes uh, uh, obedience is obvious, and it's easy. Um, I lead worship on most Sundays, and That's an easy thing for me to do. I'm a musician. I love it. It's not a huge sacrifice. But when God calls me to obey and it's a hard thing, there's a distinct glory that God reflects in me. When I bow the knee to his will and not my will. And I tried to think of an example of this that wouldn't sound like I was patting myself on the back. It's not my intent at all. Uh, Seven years ago, though, I lived here, as I mentioned, in Thurston County. We lived in a house that we had built on acreage with very, very good friends. And all of our kids were growing up together, and it was this safe place. And we'd chuck our kids out the door, and they'd play all day and come in filthy. And we'd walk across the street and have impromptu meals. And it was just this rich and wonderful time in my life. And one day, the Holy Spirit prompted my wife and I spontaneously, kind of like taking a magnet and putting it up against a compass, and suddenly north becomes south. And he was telling us, I have a new place for you, and this isn't it. And it went against every single impulse that we had because we loved our family and our friends and our church and our workplace, And our job opportunities, everything was great here. And yet he was telling us to go. And we didn't know where that was going to be. We didn't know when. It was disorienting. But as the weeks went on, the hand of the Lord was heavy on us. And we relented. We bowed the knee to God's will instead of our own. In some ways, it's still very difficult, as I miss people down here greatly. But we said yes, Lord. And we moved and that step of obedience led us to leave the place where our, 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 our love, our heart was into a new place. And I don't have time to expound on all the many amazing circumstances that confirmed God's will in this in our life, uh, but I will say that looking back, I can see how God was moving and how many things God has done through us that was not because of us. And I think God was uniquely glorified because some of his servants didn't bow the knee to their own will, but to God's will. In life, Christ is our perfect example. And in his flesh, going up against suffering and difficulty and rejection isn't something that anybody would enjoy. But he knew God's plan. And in Hebrews records it as Christ's joy that he went to the cross for you because he knew the outcome. And we can trust in God that the outcome is good as well, even if we are not privy to it. It brings me to our final point this morning, and that is that the mind of Christ glorifies God in delighting in his purpose. So in this final prayer, Jesus has glorified God by waiting on him, obedience to him, and now delighting in his purpose. Verses 2 and 3. You have given him authority, Jesus, authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is what theologians would call an intra Trinitarian revelation. Uh, It's a conversation within the Trinity sort of like walking into an important boardroom with executives speaking, talking about a very high-level thing that you had no business listening in on. The purpose of God in salvation is revealed to us in this passage, and sometimes we talk about it in terms of the doctrine of election or predestination, and even now, as I said, those words, uh, I'm expecting a fight to break out in the room, Um But this is a truth that the Apostle John talks about repeatedly in his gospel. And now it culminates in his high priestly prayer to the Father, just before the cross. And so we have to stop and think. He's moments away from arrest, execution, burial. And this purpose of God in salvation is one of the first things he mentions in his prayer to the Father something he rejoices in. So we would do injustice to his word if we just passed it by because it's not convenient. I want to avoid human offense. But this says that Jesus has been given authority over all people. Not some, not most, but all. And that authority, specifically in the text, has to do with giving eternal life to a people. This eternal life is not distributed indiscriminately, but to the people the Father has given to the Son. So the Father gives the people to the Son. The Son acts with his authority to give them eternal life that he is about to earn for them. And then in the rest of chapter 17, Jesus is praying for those disciples' perseverance, sanctification, and unity for the rest of time. But there's a purpose behind that electing work of God, and it's not just some idea that's out in in the ether that we like to debate about. The purpose is in the text that you would know God and his son, Jesus Christ. That is the heart behind the text that I want you to see this morning. Jesus isn't speaking as some stuffy professor giving an academic lecture or trying to impress people with his intelligence, biblical acumen. He's revealing the loving heart of the Father and Son to rescue with open arms and receive us close to his chest. Jesus' priorities are not to profess a random doctrine but to delight in the purpose of God, which secures a people who will enjoy God's presence for eternity. Now, I have doctrines in scriptures that I'm fond of talking about. Election is one of them. This text is not about proving election, it is about anchoring you to something that is inconceivable to much of the world that God can be known intimately. And if we miss knowing God, we miss salvation. All of redemption's story from the beginning, from God's work in eternity past to the garden, to the fallen Adam, rebellion through history, and Christ's redeeming work on the cross was so that you might know God. And we aren't limited to just knowing things about God, although that's certainly a, a part of it. This word carries a, a connotation, a, an implied meaning in the original language, of an experiential kind of knowing. Jesus is delighting in the reality of salvation, which ensures that his people will come into an experiential knowing of God in the future, and he knows they will be enraptured by it. He delights in it because it is the reconciliation of a relationship that has been broken for thousands of years God and humanity. The Garden of Eden restored. Have you ever gone to a concert and you just had to tell somebody about it? You have got to see them in concert. They are amazing. And really what you're saying is, I derived so much joy from this experience and I want you to have it too. And when you meet the Lord, you come away changed. You're not the same person. He takes you in as you are with all of your faults and and troubles and sins and difficulties. But you will never be the same. And that is because we get to meet the king of kings. And the mind of Christ here is delighting in the purpose of God. To save us so that we get to know God. And that means a lot of things. There's a whole lot to go on. Knowing God by J.I. Packer, great book. That'll, That'll help you understand that a whole lot better. But in this case, it means that we have access to God in the same way that Jesus is demonstrating at this moment in his life. We can come before God himself, pour out our hearts, cast all of our cares before him because he cares for us. He hears us, he listens to us, he sends his Holy Spirit to give us comfort, He delivers his word to strengthen us and to remind us of what is real. And then he gives us his church to sustain us and to help us stand so that we might not fall. We give him our folly and he gives us his mercy in such abundance that we can't measure it, partly because we don't even know how deep our sin goes. He is the King of kings, he is the Lord of of lords, he is before all other things. He holds everything together by the word of his mouth. He is God. There is nothing like him. There is no one like him. And we get to know him. We can come into his presence with thanksgiving in our hearts because we are not facing judgment. We are welcomed close. We are drawn near. We are fully known and we are fully loved by him. That's why the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to this throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. And as a people that the Father gave to the Son in love, we have been granted that eternal life. In this we have come to personally know the God who created us. This is something the world can't manufacture. It can only try to distract you from its life-giving joy. I saw a movie once, not too long ago, where the guy sits down at a diner, and all he wants to do is eat a piece of pie. And he he takes the bite, and he starts to bring it to his mouth, and immediately there's a distraction. He doesn't put the bite in his mouth, and the whole movie I'm thinking, when is he going to get that pie? Because it happens multiple times. And he gets arrested, and then he gets in a fight, and he gets in all these other kinds of things. And I'm thinking, man, I just, all I care about is the end of the movie. He's got to get that pie. <laughs> and at the end, it happens. He gets that bite, and you see relief wash over him that peach pie that he's been wanting. And we have been given intimacy with the living. God, And we cannot allow the distractions and fears of life to take us away from its life-giving joy and to take us away from the one who casts out fear with his perfect love. He is the source of life. He is the very source of our peace. And that is why the, he- the writer of Hebrews tells us, come to him with confidence. Go before his throne of grace. You may know the living God and receive help in your time of need. Well, this wonderful, wonderful passage could be the source for a much, much longer sermon. And I've only begun to kind of scratch the surface. Jesus goes on, and I would encourage you, if you have small groups, to uh, look at this, the remainder of the 17th chapter of John. Because Jesus prays for his disciples, and then he prays for you. And we learn that he is our constant and continual intercessor, the one who's praying for us even now. And he prays that they might not fall, that they might be set apart from the world, that they might persevere against all trial, and that they might be unified as the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son are unified. Today we've reflected on how the mind of Christ is glorified, uh, has glorified God in waiting on his timing, in obedience, and by delighting in his purpose to save us so that we might know him. And one day we will see him face to face. And this veil will be pulled away, and many of the mysteries on earth will be uncovered, and our understanding will be enlightened. And once more, just like when we first learned of redemption, we will, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord in a completely new light. It will set us to rejoicing, and God will continue to do his wonderful work in us. And our knowing him today will be eclipsed immeasurably by our knowing him then. But until then, let us hold steadfast to this word of God. And finish with these verses from Paul to the Philippian church as we reflect on the mind of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him Stowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, God, for your word, your precious word, which never returns void. I thank you, Lord, for the unity of saints in this room and the glory that you derive as they love one another. I thank you, God, for the obedience that your Son has shown us, that you are the perfect example in Jesus. I thank you for the life that you lived, giving us righteousness we cannot earn on our own. I thank you for giving us your word to strengthen us and to teach us reality and understanding. And I thank you for your Holy Spirit who continues to work in us. Help us, God, to glorify you in waiting on your perfect plan and obeying you, O God. And by delighting in your purpose, we pray these things in Jesus' awesome name. Amen.